Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming our television and webcast viewers to today's program. My name is Jennifer Sloan. I'm the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto. And on behalf of the club, we'd like to thank our viewing audience for being with us. The Canadian Club has a long history as the leading current affairs podium in Canada. Led by a volunteer board of directors, we are dedicated to encouraging open and accessible debate on issues that matter to Toronto, to the province, and to Canada. Through our youth and young leaders programs, civic action diversity partnerships, accessibility commitments, as well as through our media partnerships and social media properties, we provide opportunities for Canadians around the world to engage with leading political, business, and public figures. Thank you for joining this conversation today. Before I formally introduce our speaker, I'd like to tell you about some of our upcoming events this season. On March 31st, join Rogers Griffiths and some of Canada's pioneers in social innovation to discuss the challenges we face as we build, develop, and influence and re-engineer social systems to drive positive change. On April 8th, the Globe and Mail's editor-in-chief, David Walmsley, will be examining the definition of journalism in the 21st century, the issue of trust in society, and the necessary criteria to deliver success. And on April 28th, we are proud to recognize one of the country's most distinguished Canadians, the Right Honourable Paul Martin, with our 2014 Lifetime Achievement Award, an award that celebrates the lifelong efforts and leadership of extraordinary Canadians. For a full listing of the club's upcoming events and to order tickets, please visit our website at canadianclub.org. And you can also join the conversation via Twitter and Instagram by following us at CDNCLUBTO or by using that hashtag. Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I'm pleased to introduce today's speaker. Canadian railway transportation has been top of mind recently for more reasons than one. Threats. Spills and safeties have grabbed news headlines and turned our attention to the preferred mode of transporting goods. According to the Railway Association of Canada, railways move $250 billion worth of goods every year. This vital transportation system connects sectors, communities, and is a key economic driver. Enter CP Rail, one of Canada's oldest and most recognizable companies. Since 1881, CP Rail has been uniting our nation from coast to coast. It moves vast amounts of materials required in a wide range of sectors, from grain and feed to automotive parts, metals, minerals, and petroleum. CP Rail works to deliver and keep Canada's economy on track, pun intended. 
Year-to-date figures are as staggering as they are impressive. CP Rail has moved close to 345,000 rail card loads of goods and materials. That translates into $19 billion of revenue. These numbers firmly establish the rail giant as an industry leader in every sense of the word. Its CEO is widely credited with transforming the organization and turning operations into a dynamic, modern, and responsive system. For the past two years, Mr. Hunter Harrison has served as the Chief Executive Officer of Canadian Pacific Railway Limited and Canadian Pacific Railway Company, CP. Prior to CP, he held executive positions with Canadian National Railway Company, CN, including President and Chief Executive, and Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer. Prior to joining CN, Mr. Harrison was President and CEO at Illinois Central Corporation and Illinois Central Railroad Company. Mr. Harrison, the Canadian Club of Toronto's podium, Canada's podium of record, is now yours. Thanks, Jennifer, though, for that kind introduction, and thank you for that uh, nice, warm welcome. I, uh, it's a little bit ironic that we're here in this facility today. This is, uh, I think I'm correct, this is where the proxy contest started. <laughs> and then it turned into a proxy fight. So, uh, so I'm very familiar with these surroundings. Um, today, uh, let me apologize before I start for, for bragging, <clears throat> and I'm certainly not bragging on myself. Uh, the results that uh, you've seen with CP Rail over the last two and a half years are clearly the hard work of a lot of uh, dedicated, hardworking railroaders uh, that have been given a chance to railroad again and have performed given that chance and opportunity. I want to share a little bit with you today about our culture, about what we go through and our changes. And to help me illustrate that point, I want to share a little story with you about a um, instructor who is talking to a group of young people. And to try to make a point, he, uh, he reached under the podium and brought up a big mason fruit jar glass and a bucket of rocks, and he started taking some fist-sized rocks and sticking them in the, in the uh, jar until it was filled to the top of the brim. And he held the, the jar up, and he said, to the students, is this jar full? And one of the young men said, absolutely. And at that point, he reached and he took a bucket of pebbles and he poured in the jar. And the pebbles worked their way through the various crevices until they filled it up. And he said, now is the jar full? Certainly now. 
With that, he took some sand and poured and filled the sand in the remaining crevices up to the top. By that time, the group was reluctant to respond. (laughs) And he took a pail of water and he filled it to the top. And he said, now the jar is full. And what is the point I'm trying to make? If you want to get the big rocks in, you got to put them in first. Now, think about the big rocks in your life, your organization, whether it's in your personal life, whether it's your family, your religion, your God, your career. What are the important things in your life, the values? You know, in business, we talk about a lot about the those pebbles and the sand and the water would represent bureaucracy that gets in the way of the true value that we're trying to provide. So what are our big rocks? Number one, service. In our case, transportation service uh, to our customer. Now, that seems very simple, except when you start to define what is good service. And we had a great deal of debate internally in talking about service. And finally, we came up with this definition. Very simple. Just do what you say you're going to do. So if we tell somebody we're going to be there, we should be there. Do exactly what we say we're going to do. Number two, we have to control that cost while we're doing it. And all of us in business, effectively all our professional careers, go through that delicate balance of trying to balance cost control and service and where we deploy our resources. The third is we talk about asset utilization. Clearly, asset utilization could be described as a component of cost, but it is so very, very important to our story and the rail story that it gets its own separate line item. Because in this industry for years, we did not measure asset utilization. Who's concerned about asset utilization in a regulated environment? And this industry went through, effectively, the first 150 years regulated. And we really, I would suggest, were not prepared to deal with uh, deregulation when it came along. But I've been asked many times, and if backed in a corner, and said, what has been the key to the success of some of the turnaround stories that you've been part of? What's the one individual component? Clearly, it's asset utilization. I mean, I can give you for an example right now uh, at CP. We're moving 15% more tonnage with 1,000 less locomotives. That's huge leverage. We can say the same thing about, about rail cars. So asset utilization is certainly very important in this whole issue. The fourth is, you can call it a lot of different things, safety, 
lost control, risk management. I just like to say it's not getting anybody hurt. It's a very important part of our core culture. Um, this is, by nature, a dangerous business. And if we say otherwise, we're avoiding the truth. Uh, when you put people out in the type of weather that we are confronted with in Canada, at 40 below with the wind blowing, at 3 o'clock in the morning and trying to ask them to climb up the side of cars and let brakes off under icy conditions, it's a, it's a business that can be very dangerous. And the fifth area is what I simply describe as people. People and leadership. Now, you know, all rails operate with effectively the same gauge. We have the same locomotives and the same type of rail cars, the same type signal systems. And besides this issue that was brought up first time in my career during the proxy contest, structural issues, which you will not hear me make excuse about structural issues. What's the difference in a successful railroad and a non-successful railroad? Why do some return their shareholders with tremendous returns and others don't? Well, I would suggest to you when you sort through all that, what you find is there's a difference in people. The people you select, how do you motivate the people, the environment you create for them will, will give you a key to the success that organization might be having. Now, last, I would suggest that we take those five core values that we refer to them as, and you season them with passion and integrity, and hopefully that's what we're all about. And I talk to our people a lot about passion, about caring about what you're doing. You know, if you don't love what you're doing, life's too short. Find something else to do. Find it out early. And integrity, and we say if you don't have integrity, you don't have anything. So let me just share a few comments about the so-called CP turnaround. Some of these are not my observations or quotes. They're mostly from the media. Uh, when I came back to uh, came back in the business after two years of retirement, before you ask the question, I'll tell you why I came back. Um, basically, my wife, <laughs> in a different way than you're thinking, though. I, I got a call one afternoon from a uh, a group of people that said they were looking at the rail sector, and they were tired of hearing my name, and, and I talked a long time to them, and they called back the next day, and my wife made an observation to me. She said, you know, you've been retired now about a year and a half, and I've never seen you so enthusiastic and passionate about anything. It's time to go back to work. So I was in fairly good health, um, fairly nice opportunity. Um, and so here I am. And I came back uh, rather 
under rather controversial environment. Uh, but here's what I heard and saw. CP was the worst. Now it's on top. So we've gone from worst to first as a result of those hardworking railroaders in two and a half years. I've been in this business 50 years. There's never another railroad that's ever had a turnaround or a story like the story at CP. Whether you look at it from a financial standpoint, whether you look at it from an efficiency standpoint, if you look at it from efficiency, CP Rail, the fourth quarter of this year, was the first railroad ever in history to break the 60 barrier in fourth quarter. Now, the 60 barrier has only been broken about four or five other times in quarters. But to do it in the fourth quarter, when you have some seasonality factors, weather, holidays, okay, is beyond, I think, most people's expectations. Now, we've also, beyond that, had a little financial success. If you look back when we were sitting in this meeting here with the first presentation to the public, CP stock was trading, I think, at about $60. Today, any of the owners have been rewarded a little bit. It's trading at about, I think, 238 or 9 today. I heard a while ago it was up. Market cap has gone from 6 or $7 billion to $40 billion in two and a half years. Railroads don't do that. And this railroad does. Uh, and I'm extremely, extremely proud to be uh, part of this uh, story. And I would also hasten to add that this company is the safest railroad from a train accident standpoint in North America. Now, look, I'm not big in statistics. I don't want to bore your statistics, but I can share those with any of you that would like to discuss them. So this has been quite, uh, quite a turnaround. So let me take uh, a few moments to address some things that you've been reading about lately that have been referred to earlier and give you some of my observations and how they might affect you and what our position is going forward. Um, you know, we've heard a lot about grain. And I've never heard the dialogue that I've heard the last two or three years and 47 years in the railroad business about grain. Um, you know, year before crop year, year before last, we had a record crop year in Canada, uh, 80 million metric tons, which was effectively a normal crop year was about maybe in the 57 or 58 range. And at the same time, at the same time, and most of you can attest to this, the worst weather, as I understand it, in Canada in over 75 years. Now, would you not think that that kind of increase in the crop size and those kind of weather conditions would affect the transportation pipeline's ability 
to move grain. But we received a lot of criticism. Um, it's a little ironic. Uh, we're not receiving as much criticism this year. And you know why? Because the market's soft. The markets drive grain movements. People don't want to move grain when the price is not right. And grain sits sometimes when the price is not right, and then when it hits, guess what happens? Everybody wants to move at the same time. You know, if you look at the grain crop, about 85% of it comes in in a eight- or nine-week period. Could you expect the transportation pipeline to be able to move all that grain immediately in eight or nine or ten weeks? Can you imagine the impact on the numbers of locomotives, cars, people you'd have to make available? And then the question becomes, what do you do with them the rest of the time? Now, there's something, I've been here for close to, I guess, 15 years now, uh, and I've never understood, and nobody's really made me understood it very well, why is the one commodity in Canada that's regulated Western grain? The only explanation I've heard, if it makes sense, is the farmers, a lot of them, they vote. So as we look forward and look to what I would call some unintended consequences, <clears throat> let's look at grain. You know, we have regulated, uh, not rates as some people think, we have regulated revenues, which says railroads can only, own, uh, only generate X amount of revenue per year after they do all the calculations in, uh, in Ottawa. Uh, and so what happens? You see grain rates move and fluctuate. Generally speaking, and you will not see them that way at CP anymore, generally speaking what you see is grain rates high early in the season. And then they kind of taper across, and then somebody says, up, we're going to exceed the revenue cap. So how do they fix that? They fix it with rebates. Where do the rebates go? You want to take a guess? Think the rebates go to the farmer? No. They typically, right or wrong, factually go to large grain companies, which I don't think was the, the in, intention when, that, when those rigs were put in place. So now we have a system where Ottawa tells us how much we must move each period. Uh, with due respect, I'm not sure where they got all this expertise about how much ought to be moved. You know, we're only one cog in that supply chain. The cars have to be loaded. The railroads have to move them. Somebody at the port's got to unload them, and you've got to have some place for them to go, to a ship or a vessel. So this, this year, with the rules and regs, we uh, missed 
the uh, mandate uh, twice, and they fined us $50,000. And you're going to see something in the press today that I could pay that for that with pocket change. I dispute that, okay? It talks about my salary, and I don't know what that got to do with it, but it's not pocket change. It's principle. Guess what? The week we didn't make the mandate. It was Labor Day weekend. They weren't unloading at Vancouver. Customers weren't loading, and it makes no sense. But it might not have looked good politically if they find one railroad and they'll find the other. But I can tell you, we'll pay that fine when the ultimate judge says to pay it. Now, what about grain cars? What are we going to do about grain cars? Grain cars in Canada, the fleet is getting older every day. In my previous position at Canadian National, I think it goes back probably about seven or eight years ago, I wrote them a letter. said, we ought to talk about grain supply. I still hadn't received a response. Now, do they think we should buy grain cars? Would you like to go to your board with an outlay of capital and tell them I'd like to spend this money, but I have no idea what the returns are? Because I don't know what Ottawa's going to set the rates at. So as long as the game is played like that, uh, we're not going to make investments in grain cars. And I think that should be a major concern that should be addressed. And I could go on and on about the, the grain issue and situation. You know, I would tell you this. I would insert this to you. Um, if you look at what I've described as our performance, and our competitors in the East from Montreal, our good friends, they do a great job also. We think we do a little better. Uh, but what's that combination give you? I'm qualified to answer this question. Canada's got the finest rail system in the world. I say that as a U.S. citizen. But I'm not saying to you is when you get something that works and it's effective, and I learned through my athletic career, don't mess with a winning combination. Leave it alone. It's working. Now, maybe, maybe we should talk a little bit about crude. Number one, I, I want to clarify something to people, some that don't possibly understand this, is that, excuse me, railroads are the only form of transportation that I'm aware of that have a common carrier obligation. We don't get to choose what we haul. Whatever is tendered to us, we by law have to haul. Do I want to haul it some of the places that I have to haul it now? No. But I'm the wrong person to talk to. Somebody should talk to Ottawa. It is a law legal obligation. 
We're last week in, in FOA sessions, final offer arbitration, with customers where we're taking a position that if we haul it and there's no negligence on our part and a third party causes issues, that it shouldn't be our liability. And we're having a hard time being able to sustain that position. Now, this is a tricky issue. Uh, you know, I learned in Chicago um, this whole NIMBY situation, not in my backyard. Everybody wants the products, but nobody wants the railroad biomare in their backyard. You know, we had a situation in Chicago where I thought Canadian National made a bit brilliant move and bought a railroad around the perimeter of Chicago to avoid the guts right down the middle of Chicago with all the railroads through the have-not territory, if you will, as opposed to the haves in the suburbs to the west. And railroads are going by the largest convention center in the world, McCormick Place. They're going by Soldier Field, okay? And there's huge exposure to potential accidents, and we're not addressing it like we should. And we've got the similar, similar situation here. Very similar situation. Now, people can say, stop moving it. Well, you want it on the highway? You want to bring chlorine into Toronto for your water system? You know, it's an issue that we all have a responsibility to deal with the best we can. And there's a lot of opportunities to improve it. You know, what, God forbid, what happened at Lake McGintyre, first of all, to me, was not what I call crude. When I saw the first films and the flames, I said, that's not crude. But what I called crude and they called crude and what the, the eventual product was were two different things. So... We've got a situation now where crude overlaps with grain. Because we think the thing to do is slow trains down. And when you slow trains down, we block crossings, and people don't like the crossings being blocked. We slow crude down, we slow the grain pipeline down. And we can't move as much grain. All this is intermixed, okay? And there's not easy solutions, or people would have already been dealing with them. So I have a few ideas that I've shared with some of the regulators and legislators, both in Ottawa and Washington. Number one, we can deal with routing protocol. Is it highly political? Yes. It just says we ought to pick the route that has the least exposure. Now, if you happen to be in a situation where you're in a route 
that is not, and it's going to be routed through your area, you're not going to like it. Somebody has to make some tough decisions and calls here. There's sourcing issues. There's people that are buying product for various reasons across the country that have got it within 100 miles from them that wouldn't have to expose the public to some of these issues. And I wish I could sit here and tell you there's never going to be another accident. I know better than that. There are going to be incidents, but we need to learn to deal with them the best we can and minimize them. Notification. It's a very controversial issue. I will notify any public official every day of what's on that train if they want to know it. But if you sit back and think about third-party intervention without me saying the other word, and you want to give someone the opportunity to break that custody chain and look at that list and say, here's what that car's got in it, and here's the location, and here's all the bad things I could do. I don't think we want that. But let me make it perfectly clear, if that's what Toronto wants, if it's what Montreal wants, we'll, we're happy to provide it from a rail standpoint. The tank car, we know. I've said this for long before, Lake McGintyre, that the tank cars need to be changed and weren't suitable. And, you know, we've spent years or more than a year arguing about 916 opposed to one-half inch with the shell. You know, it's time to get on with this. So if we take and put a safer tank car out there and get moving on it, if we look at routing protocol, if we look at sourcing, if we look at other things that we can potentially do, we can certainly minimize and improve the exposure that hauling these hazardous materials presents to the public. Somebody's got to do it. Now, last but not least, I've had uh, some degree of success in my career. Um, and it's come through basically, hopefully, some leadership ability and a pretty good plan that's called and designed and called Schedule Precision Railroads that's worked that people said for years couldn't. But probably the most frustrating, in fact, I got a recent honor of Railroad of the Year, uh, which is nice. And the first time I received the award was in, a lot of people don't know this, 1987 by the St. Louis Railway Club. And I look back at my speech then that I read, looking at the future and what railroads could do and I hear people today ask me about technology. What's the next breakthrough for rails? And the next breakthrough and the most frustrating thing we deal with now is labor. 
that we, along with labor organizations, cannot sit down at the table and iron out our disputes, and we could take this industry and raise it to another level. And at the same time, we could take the quality of life of the employees and raise that to another level. And my frustration is that with maybe a lot of the things that we've been able to accomplish with the physical operation of the railroad, we have failed miserably in dealing with our labor issues. But we don't get help from Ottawa or Washington, either one. Let me tell you the attitudes. And I know you people get tired of dealing with it. Next rail strike, when's there going to be a strike? Let me tell you the attitude in the industry. Don't start till the last minute, because nobody's going to do anything early. We tried to get the, and I'm saying this with due respect, I'm not trying to be necessarily critical. We tried to get the Teamsters who represent the engineers and conductors to engage a year and a half ago, because we knew we had some tough, difficult issues to deal with. And not until the last moment when we got called to Ottawa did people really start thinking about what the issues were, and we still didn't get anything done. Uh, you know, I think part of the problem there is this. These things to make change, which is difficult to do. We don't like change as individuals, as people. It's highly controversial. So sometimes the labor leaders just default to arbitration because then they can't be criticized. It was imposed upon them by the government or by the arbitration system. There's a lot can be done there. Uh, there's a lot that we have not uh, taken advantage of. I certainly rep recognize and respect uh, labor's right to strike. But at the same time, I think we ought to have a right to operate our company. And we're the first uh, recently that we operated during the strike. That was short duration, and we moved 60% of the tonnage. And I can tell you this, next time in two and a half years, and I don't know what's going to change the process, we're going to operate 100% with management employees. And, and why? Because we're training and have been for two and a half years training all our management employees that are physically able to run engines and trains and switch cars. Because one thing, it makes them appreciate the business or where the rubber meets the road, and it allows us to be in that position then when we sit down at the bargaining table. And the frustrating thing is another group that the Teamsters represent, uh, our rail traffic controllers, I call them dispatchers from the old days, we signed an agreement six months early before it expired for six years duration, and it was ratified 93%. Now, why would the same organization then not, we can't get a three-year agreement. You know, the, the longer we can make these agreements, at least it saves us all money 
in travel expense and, and sitting down at the table and wasting our time. But and it, it, it gives us, we're in a situation right now where we kind of have, I have to be careful how I say this, we have an older group of railroaders, which I happen to be one of, okay? And we have a younger group, and their desires and wants are totally different. And you heard a lot about in the paper about rest issues. Don't, don't buy that. Talk to me. There's not rest issues. What they asked for was the right to exercise rest voluntarily. After a run, after five runs, six runs, or whatever, the, that they could take 48 hours rest. We only said, yes, everybody has to take it. One person wants to work seven days a week. That's not safe. They said, no, 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 we want it. If he wants to work, he can work or she can work. No, you can't have it both ways. So we'll, we've got, uh, we got some issues with some of the older respected leadership that we got to deal with change because we're not going to be able to hire under the circumstances we have today new people into this marketplace. They're not going to sit by the telephone. Uh, they're not going to go through, we've learned, relocation. And we got to learn to deal with it and, and improve significantly uh, their quality of life. You know, we simply did one thing in, in another agreement that I did. You know, our, our organizations are on a mileage-based pay. Now, there are not many people on mileage-based pays today. And, and let me tell you what that creates. One person goes out and works five hours and is on a priority train and makes a whole lot of money. And another person is on duty 10 hours, okay, switching in the yard, working a lot harder, working five more hours, making a whole lot less. It's broke. The system is broke. But it's hard to get a system that's broke changed to correct it. Uh, and so we kind of would like to convert to a time-based system. Uh, you know, we have, uh, just to give you order of magnitude, if you think uh, some of these people are abused or overworked, our average engineer is working less than 40 hours a week on duty and makes an average of $135,000. It's not bad comp. We have a couple of, in some cases, you figure that you want to put it on an hourly basis, they make the tops, and I'm, this is extreme at tops, outside the norm, but they make $80 an hour. The norm would probably be 60 or 65. We got a huge challenge there. And when we make it, all will benefit. Shippers, rails, employees will all benefit by that. Well, I've talked, uh, I've talked long enough, but in closing, let me, uh, let me share with you a quote, one of my favorite quotes that I think is pretty appropriate for, uh, for today, not necessarily this day, but today environment that we live in and some of these issues that I talked about. And it's a quote from George Bernard Shaw that says this, forget about the likes 
and dislike. Just do what should be done. Now, this might not be happiness, but it is greatness. And that's what this railroad is trying to pursue. So uh, don't forget, put the big rocks in first. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Fred Mifflin, and I'm a director of the Canadian Club. Mr. Harrison, thank you for sharing your vast experience on the modern railroad with us today. As you said, while not without initial controversy, your leadership of CP Rail has come at a critical time in the company's history, and the results speak for themselves. As you have put one of Canada's iconic companies back in a leadership position in its industry. In this highly demanding and complex marketplace, efficient rail operations are central to keeping the economy moving, particularly for an export-driven economy like ours. Meeting and exceeding customer expectations and adapting to an ever-changing competitive environment are key to continued business success. While not without detractors, you have clearly set the standard for delivering against those challenges, and you've given us lots to think about. We all have a vested interest in making sure that safe and reliable rail service is core to the fabric of our economy. Mr. Harrison, we wish you continued success as you deliver industry-leading customer service throughout North America. Thanks again for being with us at the Canadian Club today. Thanks very much, Fred, and I too want to echo your thanks, Mr. Harrison. What an engaging, insightful um, chat. Thank you. Before I adjourn today's meeting, I'd like to draw your attention to the event survey cards that we have on each of your tables right here. The Canadian Club is always looking ways to improve your experience, so please take a minute and help us by sharing your thoughts and comments, including whether you've liked our new shortened luncheon format uh, this season. We'd very much appreciate your feedback. This concludes our program today, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We'd like to thank MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, for live webcasting today's program. We are also grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. To learn more about our club and our upcoming events, please visit us at www.canadianclub.org. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for joining us today. Our meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>